And I think that when we we talk about marketing having the ability to reach the right people, marketing is very powerful when it's done well. It, it reaches people at a primal level. And you you have this power to influence with marketing. And so it's it's your responsibility to know deeply who your customer is. Hello again, and welcome to SaaS Half Full, the only show serving B2B SaaS marketers. I'm Lindsay Groper, president at Blast Media, and as always, I will be your host and bartender today. I'm joined today by Christina Motz, the CMO and interim CRO at Moz, the leading authority in SEO. I've known Christina for two years and damn, she's smart. She's a seasoned marketer who was in the trenches during the first emergence of digital, and she learned the ropes of B2B marketing at companies that you may have heard of like Yahoo and Amazon. Today, Christina and I are talking about what it means to be a responsible marketer and the dangers of relying on volume marketing. So grab a drink and join my conversation with Christina. Hey, Christina, welcome to SAS Half Full. Thanks so much for joining me. We appreciate you participating in us sharing a drink together. I understand that you ordered the obligatory vodka drink from our menu, but you loved it so much that you already mixed it up and enjoyed it a few days ago. (laughs) I did. And it was the perfect drink for a nice sunny evening outside. You know, it was refreshing, a nice blend with fresh fruit. I couldn't resist. Awesome. Well, that is no problem. So I'm having a a Tito's and grapefruit. It's helping me talk myself into thinking it's like a breakfast drink, right? (laughs) (laughs) Christina, can you give us the elevator pitch on what is Ma's? Yeah, definitely. So Moz, I've been at Moz for about two years, and they're an amazing company. They are very well known in the search engine optimization space because they are probably the trusted authority. They've been around giving advice and education for many years. And they uh, at Moz, we have an SEO and local search platform. So we help marketers improve their position of their brands, their business locations, the actual physical locations, and their competitive rank in online search results. So somebody Googles something, you want to make sure you show up when your customers are looking for you, Moz gets you there. Perfect. And Moz has done an incredible job of becoming the brand resource for all things SEO. Um, We can dive into that a little bit later in our conversation. And what does your current role entail at Moz? So I am the chief marketing officer. Um, I am also the interim chief a revenue officer, which basically means I lead marketing and sales. And we do marketing for a variety of audiences. So it's actually a really expansive role, which I love. And how did you get into B2B SaaS marketing? Was this something that you have have done for a while? Did you start on the consumer side? What was that path? I have been B2B for most of my career. So I, I got here really through a foundation in consulting. I had an amazing CEO early in my career who became a mentor to me, who basically, I would say in the two years I worked directly for him, gave me um, so much knowledge about just how to approach problems, like problem solving. And that became the foundation for my career. And I found as I moved along, especially when I moved into digital marketing, that I really enjoyed helping businesses grow. And that's why I've stayed in B2B SaaS for so long. Um, And primarily a lot in big companies. I worked for a long time for Yahoo and then for Amazon. 
But most recently in the last five years or so, I've um, been working for startups and I love that energy of the smaller company that may have been around for a long time like Moz and is very energized around building community and helping their customers really from a foundation of education as well as business growth. Yeah, you've been uh, around long enough, as have I, to witness this shift into digital from a marketing standpoint. Um, And that has brought, uh, obviously, some fundamental changes to our industry for the good and some areas of improvement as well. Um, And that is sort of the basis for our conversation today. Something that you recently said in another interview is that, quote, we have the ability to do great marketing marketing that doesn't spam every possible prospect, but instead only reaches those who we truly believe may benefit from what we have to offer. Can we start by you unpacking that statement a bit? Definitely. It's an area that I feel really passionate about. I So to so go back to something you said earlier, you know, we've witnessed the emergence of digital marketing. I can remember talking to a team I had at Yahoo back in you know uh, mid-2000s. And we were talking about how to approach our audience and what tactics to use and so forth. And I remember stopping and just asking them, who is our audience? Because we were talking so broadly. And I I just said, you know, do you really know who our customer is? Because there was this idea that it was, well, anybody, anybody who is going to be online, anybody who, and I was on the B2B site, so it was really any company who wants to reach people online. It's like, well that's rather big and rather broad. You know, maybe we could do something more with that. And and I think what happened over the years, um, at, at that time, I remember telling the team, we were talking about a lot of mobile, like how to reach people mobile, because that was just an emerging tactic. And I remember telling the team, you know, marketing has been around a really long time before mobile phones existed. And yes, I was in marketing before mobile phones existed. So just as one tactic, yeah, you know, that that shouldn't define our audience. The tactic and the way we reach them shouldn't define who they are and what they need and what their pain is. And I think that when we, we talk about marketing, having the ability to reach the right people, marketing is, it's very powerful when it's done well, it, it reaches people at a primal level and you have this power to influence with marketing. And so it's, it's your responsibility to know deeply who your customer is so that you wield that power in a way that's um, you know only reaching those who can most benefit because otherwise you are influencing people to spend at least time. And time is very valuable looking through and educating themselves about your product when it's not even for them. So, you know, if you want to do good marketing, you want to use your power for good versus evil, it's your responsibility to really get to know your customer and only try to attract them. Right. Yeah. It's that whole uh, trying to boil the ocean analogy, right? Definitely. And I feel like along those same lines too, it's it's even when we're onboarding new clients or, or if I'm having a conversation with prospects and I'll say, well, who, who are your competitors? And when I get the answer, no one, right? There's no one that does what we do. I, I, I'm like, oh my gosh, we really need to take a step back here because even if there's not a direct software competitor or SaaS competitor in the space, you might be competing with a status quo, right? Or, or legacy self-built. And there is always a, another choice than yours. And so figuring out why do people choose your 
product and who are those people and what are their pain points. I agree with you is fundamentally something that it's the building block, right? For everything else that follows. And often sometimes, especially for a new startup that thinks they have no competitors, they're competing with the, the mind space of the person who doesn't know they even have that pain point or problem. You know, so if you're a new company trying to solve a problem, you have to educate them on the fact that that problem can be solved. And that pain isn't, doesn't just have to be accepted because people tend to just do things the same way they've always done it and don't even realize that they could save a tremendous amount of time or money or so forth implementing a new solution. I want to pause the conversation with Christina for a minute and talk a little bit more about defining a competitor set. Christina talked about how we should try to not boil the ocean and not blanket market to everyone, which couldn't agree more, have to define that ICP. And when it comes to competitors, oftentimes I'll be speaking with prospective clients of Blast Media or potentially new clients. And I occasionally will get the answer to my question of, well, who are your competitors? And I get the answer of no one. No one does what we do. While that, in theory, could be true, potentially your product does something slightly different than competitors, we really need to challenge that answer. And we tend to look at competitors in four different segments to really understand your prospect pain points, what they're grappling with in the buying decision, or even where they are in the educational process of looking for a solution. So when it comes to competitors, think about it in four segments. The first are true competitors. Is there another SaaS solution that does what you do? All all things considered equal. There might be a couple of different features and benefits. Maybe the pricing structure is different. But is there a category competitor or two or three of a SaaS solution that does what you do? The second bucket is perceived competitors. These are the annoying competitors that your sales team comes up against that they're, they literally roll their eyes because they, oh, I already have a blah, and they'll throw out a company name. And it's not at all what you guys do, but it's still a perceived competitor. So there's a lot of education, obviously, that needs to be done on what's the difference between A and B, uh, but that's the second type. The third are point solutions. So this is is almost a subset of perceived competitors But these are usually shiny new objects that are doing one thing well. So if your solution does 10 things, but there is a new startup with an injection of a lot of capital and a big name founder, but takes care of one piece of your product, that's a point solution. And oftentimes we need to look at them from a competitor set as well. A lot of times from a sort of a share of conversation standpoint. And then the fourth set that we can't forget from a competitive landscape is status quo. This is oftentimes when your buyer doesn't even know that this problem exists, let alone a solution. And sometimes that status quo, what you're competing with is doing nothing, right? They're they're choosing to do nothing and just run whatever their current system is. Um, Or you're competing with like legacy self-built internal systems where they think they can build it versus buy it. So that's the four set. So again, when when looking at defining your competitive set, look at four, true, perceived, point solutions, and the status quo. All right, let's get back into our conversation with Christina as we dive into data privacy and more on marketing responsibly. In your opinion, what are marketers responsible for today? So I think that 
It's an interesting question because depending on who asked that question, you would probably get a different answer. So if you ask a marketer, you know, what is your responsibility, your primary responsibility as a marketer to this company? Most marketers are going to say something like growth. It's my responsibility to drive growth. If you ask a marketer who's in the middle of developing uh, major campaigns with an understanding of the current guardrails in place to protect data privacy, they might say, it's my responsibility to reach the right customers that want to be reached. And and that's the tricky part, right? Is that as marketers, we need to really understand the customers that don't just need us and could benefit from us, but those that are, are ready and want to talk to us. And sometimes we develop that, like we definitely have to develop awareness and, and interest in the market, but it is the responsibility of a marketer to know how to do that without spreading their message so broad that it just, well, it, it invokes annoyance more than anything. And I think the challenge is, is that there are so many tactics now to so easily spam the world with your message. And if you get it out there broad enough, you get some hits, you get a lot of hits, like you could actually fill the top of your funnel, but you might be filling the top of your funnel with garbage. And you also are creating an atmosphere in the market where your, your brand becomes known for um, just, you know, spamming everybody. And so it's dangerous in the long run. And I think as a marketer, it's your responsibility, not just to drive growth, but to drive growth responsibly by reaching the right people and to drive growth profitably for your company. Because if you're filling the top of the funnel with garbage, I, I you know, trust me, you're, you're going to end up in a place where those are very expensive acquisition targets because they end up churning at much greater rates. I had a previous guest on in our first season, the CMO from Sixth Sense, and she talked a lot about the the power that the prospect holds now as opposed to the marketer. And something that we talked about is that the B2B buyer wants to research and shop anonymously and that it's the marketer's responsibility to cater to that anonymity. How do you feel a a B2B prospect wants to be marketed to today? Do you agree with that? They, They want to be anonymous? Sometimes. I, you know, I think it really depends on at what point they're at in their buyer's journey. But I do absolutely agree that you have to respect where they're at in the journey. And um, I'm familiar with uh, the CMO at Six Sense. She's wonderful. And uh, it's a great company. And I, and I think that one of the things they do really well is understand their customer and understand that at, at different points in that customer's buyer's journey, whether it's very early where they're just becoming aware that they have an issue and they're trying to figure out how to tackle that issue. Yeah, I think they want to be anonymous. And if you gate all your content and require them to put their email address in, and then you start marketing to them in a very aggressive way, you don't allow them that early stage of um, developing the idea around the fact that they have a need and they have a pain and there are ways to solve that. And instead you're trying to push them so aggressively into considering your brand, that can be a real turnoff. So I would say I do definitely agree with it in that in that early stage. And that's actually why Moz provides a tremendous amount of free content because we do believe that 
it's our responsibility as a company, not just to cater to that individual who requires our requests anonymity, but also to cater to the community that may not even be ready to buy our product ever, but they're interested in this area that we work in. And so we think that we have the responsibility to educate them without marketing to them. So we offer a ton of free content that is not, and by free, I mean, it's even free to those who you don't have to put in your email address to get it. It is not gated content. It's that, you know, idea of the rising tide lifts all ships where you're making the category and that that discipline better and stronger and ensuring SEO is being done the right way, right across the board, whether it's a Moz customer or not. And I love that mentality. There, when you talk about the the garbage in, right? If you're casting a really wide net with with very little personalization, I mean, that becomes a a volume game, uh, definitely a quantity over quality. There are many marketing leaders who are hired in in a new organization where, especially in a small organization where the CEO has has ideas around, around marketing. If you walk into a situation where your CEO believes in the volume game as the measure of marketing success, how do you have that conversation around personalization and responsible marketing? Like, what do you do with that? How do you get that started? That's a really great question. And I would say that it's not just the CEO that might have that idea, right? I mean, sometimes it is the CMO. Sometimes it is everyone on your executive team has this idea that what you need to do is is drive growth, especially in this this time when there's this illusion about growth marketing that are growth hacking, right? And we all want to be growth hackers. Well, I don't want to be a growth hacker because I think it's important when you're faced with that sort of challenge to just drive volume, to understand the composition of that volume. So break down that traffic that you are receiving and if you can analyze and understand what segments really engage at the early stage. So let's say you you play that volume game for whatever your cycle is. Maybe it's you know 30 days before you start seeing real engagement with the product. And then you start breaking it down and understand what does the segment look like that started engaging with your product immediately? What does the segment look like that hasn't engaged yet or maybe just starts trickling in some engagement at the end of that 30 days? What do those two segments look like over time? Do the early stage engagers stay engaged longer? Can you break them down? Can you understand? Do they have different firmographics? Are they from different industries? Um, Do they have different proficiency levels in your particular arena? So for search engine optimization, it's one of the questions we ask as a new customer comes into the fold. We ask them what their proficiency level is because it's really interesting to us to make sure that we understand how somebody might be who is early in their proficiency level of SEO might be using our product versus somebody who is more advanced. And when you start breaking down the funnel and also understanding how long somebody stays before they churn, you have data to start understanding what a customer looks like who becomes whatever you define as a lifer. So we know at Moz that if a customer stays a certain number of months, they are going to stay with us forever. 
because they become so deeply engaged with our product that they love it. And so it's my job to understand what that life or segment looks like as they come through the top of the funnel, because those customers are going to have a much higher lifetime value. And especially when you look at the key metric of lifetime value over the customer acquisition cost, it is much higher for a customer who's highly engaged, who stays longer, who becomes one of your loyal segments. They typically high, um, buy at higher rates and or upgrade more often than your other customers who are less engaged. And so when you become armed with that data, you can have a really meaningful conversation with your CEO to talk to them about how volume actually is going to cost you, in, not just in marketing spend, but in labor, that that the ability to get those campaigns out and create this big growth in the top of the funnel takes time. And so you you have actual budgetary you know, expense against it. You have a time expense against it. And that customer acquisition cost has to be spread out over all those segments. You have an extremely low LTV to CAC, CAC, customer acquisition cost. You have a very low number if those customers are turning out earlier. And it's much higher when they stay longer. So if you can help your CEO understand that the more you can analyze and understand that traffic and understand those customers and model what that audience who ends up staying with you, what do they look like? What are their demographics? What sort of content did they engage with when they first started engaging with you? You then could create marketing that goes after just those customers because you know that they need you so much. And they are so ready for you that they're going to engage deeply, they're going to stay longer, and they're going to have a much higher lifetime value. And that is way more valuable to a CEO than volume. That's really helpful. And I'm sure it's comforting for some listeners to know that even at an organization like Yahoo, they still didn't have a defined ICP. This is what I wrote down is that it's not about volume. It's about understanding the composition of the volume. And that is a key point that, that you've been hitting home. And also the fact that you guys are able to identify lifer customers, get out of here. That's, I mean, customer goals right there. That's probably making people like, oh, I want, I want lifer customers. <laughs> so you have to, have to be looking at the composition of what's coming in to help identify who those people are. Honestly, identifying them and then attracting them are two different things. So the reality is there is such an art and science to marketing. And just because you identify them doesn't mean you can wave a magic wand and suddenly you're going to attract all of those, but you can get better and better at it. Right. Oh, absolutely. And there is an art and a science to all layers of marketing. I mean, we, we're going through this process with our the new hires that we just onboarded as well for PR is while we do have processes and we have you know data-backed ways of doing things, there's a big part of what we do that is art, right? Because every editor is different, every media outlet, the current climate and what's happening in the world there, you know, we, there's not a, a exact playbook for any of it, right? There's too many moving parts. And so you have to have that ability to adapt and adjust and take risks too, and try things. Absolutely. That's where it gets fun. I mean, because there's no playbook. Yeah, you can, we, we have a great, we call it a test and invest strategy across Moz, not just in marketing, but across the whole company. 
And I think it more than anything is what attracts talent. And our teams love it because they get to have fun trying new things and doing things that become meaningful to customers. You'd be surprised at some of the feedback we get from marketing campaigns. Customers will reach out and thank us and they'll be like, that was so great. I really loved the fact that you reached me with X or with this you know, different way because they, they feel taken care of. They don't feel sold to. You mentioned briefly data privacy, and I certainly don't want this to turn into a discussion about data privacy laws unless you want it to. Obviously, there has been a um, surge of new data privacy laws and regulations that are affecting marketing in a big way. How did we get here? And in your opinion, how can marketers move forward in a more responsible way? As a marketer who's been around for decades, it's been um, troubling to me to watch you know, this emerge. Because I think we got here because I think with a mix of us getting excited about all of the possibilities and how easy it was to reach people in with different digital channels. And we didn't understand. I don't think we, we just, we didn't understand what would happen. We didn't look towards the future enough. It's a little like Jurassic Park, right? <laughs> we created these amazing ways to reach people, these giant dinosaurs, and yet we didn't understand the power and, um, and, and what it could ultimately do to people. And, and what we found is that it felt and became a violation for a lot of consumers. They didn't like that their data was being used to target them in ways that were too intimate. And, and too private. And then honestly, there was also the stuff that just went completely black hat, where people were selling and buying data that should never have been available. And I, I'm no expert at all in data privacy. However, as a marketer, um, I know that there are so many people I have talked to um, in the different groups that I gather with of different CMOs and different marketing leaders who have tried so hard to market in such a responsible way that data privacy laws and regulations and restrictions would not have had to be necessary. But there weren't enough people who understood it, enough marketers who understood it fast enough to create their own self-regulation about how they would market. And and I, I really believe in a big way that that is how we ended up here where now there we have legislators creating data privacy laws that are necessary because we do need to protect consumer privacy. And yet as a marketer, what's happened is we now receive these laws, like GDPR is a great example, super important legislation that I think is helpful in uh, protecting consumers' privacy. And yet it is so complex and complicated to execute um, on that you know, across a company, you like we have created at Moz a cross-functional team across the entire company just to focus on GDPR and to make sure that we are adhering to every step and every little part of the regulations. And so I keep asking myself, wow, as a marketer, if I had gathered with my peers and all of us somehow across the world had said, we are going to only use marketing for good. And we are only going to reach out to those customers that we know could benefit from our products. Could we have kept these regulations from even needing to be created? So, and maybe that's just a pipe dream, but 
I do think that the regulations make it a lot harder. Um, if anything, just to, just to try to understand what you can and cannot do and how you must store data and so forth. And I think it's incredibly important that we adhere to the data privacy regulations and also, gosh, I wish we had just been responsible enough to not need them. Well, now you look at the current climate and, and now everything is being layered with this extra microscope on sensitivity, empathy, tonality, and from someone who lives in external comms, you know, my, my thought is, boy, we should, we should have always been, right? <laughs> right? Is That's what we should have always been looking at uh, our, our communications in such a way, whether that's how what our brand is communicating or our website or our content or our ad, whatever it is, we should always be thinking about the current climate and the customer and being empathetic and, and understanding their pain. You know, we were essentially forced into a digital only world seemingly overnight, right? I mean, the Band-Aid was ripped off. So as consumers, as family members, friends, and work professionals, all of a sudden we were relying on, on video and online only as our only option to connect. What marketing strategies have you seen emerge as most valuable? Gosh, you know, the need to reach people online is is real for different industries, a lot of industries that have never had to do it before. And I think, you know, from a connecting standpoint, we're definitely seeing people pay a lot more attention to search. More people are working at home, they or or not, you know, they are at home and not able to work. And they are trying to um, maybe up-level their skills. So we see a lot of people go online looking for different types of training opportunities. Um, we do see a lot of companies coming to us right now that are trying to figure out how to attract online customers because they've never really had to do that before. So we do see a surge in SEO interest and especially just trying to figure out how to optimize websites to attract more customers, how to optimize content, what type of content might attract more customers. We also are seeing, and when I say we, I mean you know the bigger network of CMOs that I'm a part of, we have been tested like crazy to try to create more online events, virtual events. And so I, I personally am so thankful for the huge variety of online vendors. I mean, Google Hangouts are wonderful, but Zoom has been wonderful for both uh, business and, and honestly school, right? I'm a mom and I've got kids, you know, trying to do their schoolwork now online. And it's been wonderful for that. On24 is our webinar platform. We work with Skilljar, our learning management system that has, they have worked with us to really um, figure out how to scale our training so we can offer it for free. So I think there have been so many digital partners that have come out of the woodwork to help marketers right now figure out how to connect online. And it's, you know, connecting online doesn't mean just having a website. It means opening up yourself to things like virtual events and what does that look like? You know, is it just a webinar where we talk at you or is it interactive? And there are a lot of platforms now that are figuring out how to help us still interact with customers online. And then I think those platforms that are helping us get exposure for content that our prospects and our community really need to consume right now, as businesses are trying to figure out um, how to stay alive during this period. 
how to create an online um, commerce experience for their customers that used to only come through their front door. And even as states start to reopen in the U.S. and then different global regions, these customers are trying to figure out what's my strategy now. So how do I reemerge? How do I build my pipeline back up? And I think that I know from the network that I talk to, a lot of the marketing strategies are focused on continuing that digital connection through content, through digital experiences, all different types of virtual events, and through optimizing both site and um, content and understanding the keywords your customers are looking for when they're searching for you, understanding the type of content they'll consume and how to you know, even have a write the right headline. So in PR, you know this, you could have an awesome article that you know is going to help the community. But if you don't get the right headline on there, it's never going to pop up in search results. And customers probably or community won't read it and understand that there's value for them there. So I think that that's, you know, we're, we're seeing a lot of those types of strategies, very organic strategies. You mentioned your network and, and you have an extensive one. Um, and I'm sure many people look to you as sort of an aspirational CMO, um, especially now that you also have um, that interim CRO role as well. Um, the last question I have is around aspiring CMOs. We have many listeners who are looking at that next career jump to to become a CMO. And I I have a twofold question. One is what's a skill set or mindset that you believe will set them apart from other candidates? And then two, once they get that job, what should be that first conversation that they have with their new marketing team? You know, I think the skill set that I find most helpful for me as a CMO is my willingness and my ability to step outside of marketing and to partner with the CEO and the other executives and to understand that a major part of my role is to understand and contribute to business strategy and then design marketing strategy that supports it and aligns. And I think when you are aspiring to be a CMO, that critical mindset shift from, you know, a lot of times you might be a VP of marketing before you make that next step. And as a VP of marketing, you are running marketing, you're understanding deeply who your customers are, you're understanding how your customers interact across products and so forth. But ultimately, you are you are typically responsible for marketing goals and for making sure that you design a marketing team and marketing strategy that works, you know, for the company. When you make that step to CMO, you really have to understand the CEO's vision and the board's participation and how you can partner side by side. And it's, I I think it is a mindset shift because you become, uh, your your first team in a way becomes your executive team. It was actually something that um, Latney, the CMO of Sixth said on the recent call that you really need to think of your executive team as your first team. And that can be a funny switch, right? Because you think, well, wait, my marketing team is my first team. But when you're a CMO, you do really need to partner with your executive peers to run the business. And also, you need to take care of your team and make sure they align. So then that first thing you say to your marketing team, I think, is, you know, hey, let's dig in. Help me understand the customer. 
What do you know about the customer? What do you wish you knew? And can we figure out a way to understand them more deeply? And then let's talk about strategies to reach them. That's awesome. Um, That is a really interesting perspective on who your first team is when you're a CMO versus a VP of marketing. Well, the way that we always send us out of this show is with a favorite or signature toast. Do you have one for us? You know, I do. I love a toast that just opens up your heart. So I would say to joy and gratitude for all of our abundance. I love that. And we need that today. So I will drink to that. Thanks again to Christina for joining us on the show. If you want to try her obligatory vodka drink, we're giving away a limited number of free cocktail kits to our listeners delivered straight to your door. Yes, we will send you booze in the mail that you can unwrap and enjoy at home. All you have to do is go to cocktailcourier.com slash sasshalffull and use promo code CONNECT to claim a free cocktail kit. Again, cocktailcourier.com slash sasshalffull and promo code CONNECT to claim a free cocktail kit. Thanks again for listening, everyone. Until next time, bottoms up.